BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends, and welcome. Welcome to the Bill Press Pod, and welcome particularly to this week's roundtable. On this Thursday, September 19, a look back at the big news of the week with three of Washington's most intrepid political reporters. Uh, a lot of attention to foreign policy this week with the United States on the brink of war with Iran, it seems. Boris Johnson still losing ground and face in the UK. And Bibi Netanyahu failing to win in a special Israeli election. And with Congress back in town, lots going on here in Washington, too. Congress under more pressure to do something about guns. Speaker Pelosi under more pressure to get started on impeachment. And former Trump campaign manager Corey Lewandowski bragging to Congress about lying to the media and immediately invited to appear on CNN. Meanwhile, Sean Spicer makes a total ass of himself yet again. On top of it all, this week's panelist, John Bennett, Senior White House Reporter for Roll Call. Hey, John. Hey, how are you? Good to see you. Niall Stanage, back with us, White House columnist for The Hill. Hello, Niall. Hey, Bill. And Matt Gertz, Senior Fellow for Media Matters for America. Hi, Matt. Hey, Bill. So, um, gentlemen, we have gone this week from one scandal to another. We have dived right from Sharpie Gate into Whistleblower Gate. Uh, it seems that now we have the story, as I understand it, back on August 12, a member of the intelligence community, an intelligence officer, was so upset by something he heard President Trump promise to a foreign leader that he filed a whistleblower complaint with the Inspector General of the intelligence community. John, you cover the White House, now you do too. Let's start with you, John. What are we... Who is he talking? Who is Trump talking to? And what did he promise? We don't know yet uh, who he was talking to. Uh, these things do have a way of coming out, especially when Congress is involved. Uh, you know, 535 uh, members, uh, the, the House Democrats are going to get a hold of this. We may fa find out. We do know in the five or so day span before uh, the complaint was filed, uh, the president talked to that we know of five other world leaders. One of them happened to be, and here we go again, Vladimir Putin of Russia. Um, it seems like we can't get away from Russia. It, it, we, we have Sharpies on hurricane maps, and then a week later, we're back with Putin. So we don't know yet. We don't know what the promise was either. Uh, we know that it had to do with very sensitive information. We don't know, we don't know a lot yet. Uh, the the inspector general um, uh, of, of the agency here is, is going to be on the hill and testifying and um, have a, a sneaking suspicion we're going to find out a lot more as as this plays out on the hill. Is this a big deal now? Oh yes, absolutely. I mean, this has many of the ingredients of a major scandal, at least potentially. Um, it's again one of these instances where where one to envision this happening with 
any other president, I know the cliche is always to harken back to President Obama, but any other president, then this would be an absolutely massive story. Now, John quite rightly points out that we don't know the full or specific contours of this, but the mere fact that an intelligence official was willing to make a formal complaint and that the Inspector General appears to have viewed that complaint as at least valid enough to require urgent investigation. That in itself says quite a lot. But Matt, one side of me says that um, the essence of intelligence officers is that they keep secrets. Uh, so if they're listening into a phone call with between the president and a foreign leader, is, is that an open book or should it be? Well, I mean, I think that's why uh, this person is going through the process that's followed in these cases and going to the inspector general and the inspector general is now attempting to forward this uh, on to congress it's you know uh, the way the laws are written congress wants to know when there's a major whistleblower complaint so that they can assess it and determine if anything needs to be done about it uh, and now uh, you seem to have the administration standing in the way of that process right is the law clear is the president covered by whatever <laughs> whatever rules or laws apply here I'm not sure we know the answer to that yet. I think this is going to be lawyered and lawyered. You know, this hmm. could. Here we go to the courts uh, yet again with Donald Trump. Uh, you know, Niles right. This could be a huge scandal. But then again, by this time next week, we'll be on to something else. Trump may even kind of Are you invent kidding? something by this time today. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, there you, right. And remember, there's nothing on the president's schedule today, so anything can happen today. So this could be this could be just just washed away by another tidal wave of, of two or three tweets. Right. Um, well, one and this happens by the way in the middle of um, at one point this week it seemed we were on the brink of war with Iran um, because the White House claiming that it was Iran that sent these missiles into Saudi Arabia and hit their oil field. Um, are we at war with Iran, Niall, or headed there? Or headed there? <laughs> well, not yet, is, is the short answer. But, I mean, clearly, I don't want to be too flippant about it because it's clearly a very serious situation. We have Mike Pompeo referring to the um, attack on Saudi oil facilities as an act of war, as an Iranian uh, attack. And um, One of the interesting things about this, to me, is that it gets at this sort of um, ambivalence or... or President Trump uses very bellicose language, we all know that, and yet his willingness to actually get involved in foreign conflicts is quite limited. And we saw that, for example, with the firing of John Bolton, even though a man who worked for Bolton has now been appointed to fill his position. But it is this curious uh, scenario where, um, for example, I mean, not not just pertaining to Iran, but in the case of North Korea, Trump, soon after he Mm -hmm. was... Uh, took office was talking about annihilating North Korea and now it's a very different tone that applies there as well. Right. Um, And with Iran, first of all, Matt, um, Media Matters takes a look at everything the administration says, did so under Obama, I might say as well, and then says, okay, this is what's true and this is what's not true. Are we to believe the White House that Iran did this? 
Uh, I think generally the White House hasn't done a lot uh, over the past couple of years to suggest that we should believe what they say automatically, certainly. Um, I, I think there uh, has been uh, some reporting out of CNN having looked at some of the satellite photos that the White House was saying clearly indicated that the attack had come from uh, Iraq or Iran. Uh, CNN's own experts looked at that and said, well, that, that's not necessarily the case. Uh, so, you know, it's a tricky situation. This is what happens when you have a president who uh, basically lies constantly for several years. It makes it very difficult to, to take anything at face value. Well, then the question, John, is even, let's say, even if, right, the White House is correct in this case, that did come from Iran um, and, and the attack on Saudi Arabian oil fields, why is it our job to defend Saudi Arabia? We sell them all kinds of fighter planes, bombers. They've got more than enough military uh, capacity of their own. Sure. Uh, they have the capacity, yet they've been unable to, to defeat the Houthis in, in Yemen. So do they know how to use it? Are they that skilled tactically? But uh, back to, to what Matt was saying, yeah, should we trust the White House that, that Iran did this? But you're also in a situation where you're going to have to trust the Trump administration and the Saudi government. Remember, they, by all accounts, by all evidence, they outright lied about uh, Jamal killing, Khashoggi. Right, right. they yeah. lied about that. Uh, President Trump never seemed to, to care that much. So it's, it's kind of this, you're backed in a corner here on, on, on who to believe and, and whether to believe them. Um, but, you know, President Trump on Monday, I was in the Oval Office when he was talking about um, before he does anything or orders any kind of military strike, he said, you know, we're going to have to sit down with the Saudis and work something out if, if the U.S. does it. And then he started talking about um, his past business interactions, real estate transactions, I guess is what he was alluding to, uh, with the Saudis, indicating that he would make them reimburse the U.S. for any military strike. And he said, quote, the Saudis pay cash. Mm. So it was just another surreal moment in there where the president is basically trying to, to, to start a negotiation with the Saudis uh, you know, to reimburse us for tomahawks or hellfires or, or jet fuel or whatever it might take to, to do something. But my, my gut here and watching the president's body language all weekend and, and in the Oval on Monday, he doesn't, he's not comfortable with, with striking Iran. He, he doesn't really want to do it. He wants to talk tough. He, he hopes those words will, will alter the Iranians' metrics here. But I just don't get the sense he really deep down wants to do anything. Yeah, the Saudis are going to pay for uh, pay us back for all those tomahawks, and Mexico is going to pay for the wall, too. Uh, now, you did mention uh, that the there's no doubt that the administration sees it very seriously when Secretary of State Mike Pompeo arrived um, in Saudi Arabia yesterday. Um, he called it what he called it. Here it is. There were no Americans killed in this attack, but any time you have an act of war of this nature, there's always risk that that could happen. So when you say act of war, that implies a response. Mm -hmm. um, in his column in the New York Times uh, this morning, Thursday, Nicholas Kristof quotes former Defense Secretary Robert Gates mm -hmm. saying that Saudi Arabia wants to fight the Iranians down to the last American. Mm, yeah, it's a great, it's that, a great quote. That, again, is the question. Mm. Uh, is it our job? This is not a NATO kind of deal, right, where we have a pledge to support anybody else who's been attacked by another country. 
Right. It's not enshrined in that way at all. I think the um, enshrining of the alliance is via President Trump's own words and, and tone and view of Saudi Arabia. And look, Saudi Arabia has been effectively an ally of the United States for a long time, and I don't think anybody around this table would defend Saudi's um, human rights record or anything else in, in any particularly emphatic fashion. But um, to get back to um, John's point about, you know, Saudi Arabia pays for it in cash, as the president said, the, the starkness or the directness with which the current president draws the line between Saudi money and American policy is unusual and striking and seems to animate his view of that country to a really perplexing extent. Uh, and Matt, there, there are some who have observed that this whole mess may be of the president's own making because um, before he came into office, right, we had a pretty good new level of relationship with Iran with the Iran nuclear deal where they'd agreed to put their nuclear capacity aside for 15 years or more. And one of the first things that the president did is throw that deal away. And ever since then, it's been worsening, worsening, worsening our relationship with well, if I Well, if I recall correctly, there were a couple of uh, instances in which uh, the Department of Defense and other U.S. Uh, agencies would, would say that the Ira- Iranians were obeying the terms of the treaty, uh, and uh, the president eventually just sort of overruled them and said, okay, it doesn't matter, we're out anyway. But the weird thing about this is that he's now returned to basically the identical posture that, like, perhaps we could create a deal with the Iranians in which they uh, back off on uh, nuclear stuff in exchange for, uh, you know, removing sanctions, which is, like, status quo ante, basically. I think it sort of shows that the the president did not have a deeply held national security vision that compelled him to remove uh, the United States uh, from that agreement. He really hated it because it was associated with Barack Obama, and he really hates Barack Obama, and that basically was the beginning and the end of the story for him. So if we're not going to war with Iran, um, the administration is clearly going to war with California uh, in two waves this week. Um, number one, the, the administration announced that they're going to take away from California um, the, uh, um, a right, not a right, I guess, an exep- exception or exemption that California has held since the days of Ronald Reagan about adopting tougher air quality standards than the, than the federal standard. Uh, again, since Ronald Reagan, California's been doing that. 13 other states have adopted the same standards. And then on top of that, yesterday, the president announced flying back on Air Force One that EPA was going to fine the city of San Francisco over the homelessness situation because used needles from these homeless camps are getting into San Francisco Bay and polluting the water. A double whammy. John, what's going on? I mean, is he thinking he's going to conquer California and turn it red again or what? I don't I, think they're under any illusions about turning California red. I think, uh, especially, this, I'll take the, the second, the, yeah, the, the, the needles and the homelessness. This is something that, that the president has harped on really since early in his, his presidency. Um, you know, he, he singles out these major um, urban areas, Chicago, L.A., and others, 
And, you know, it, it, it plays well with, with the conservative base. It plays well with rural America. It keeps them energized. It's part of this otherism that the president, you, we hear a lot from him. Um, it's scary to, to think about all, you know, homelessness and, and violence and disease in, in these major American cities. And he uses it, it seems like, to, to really send a message to his base. Everything's about the base. I think both, both moves are, 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 are aimed at, you know, keeping his base um, energized against this big liberal machine. And, and these cities are part of that in, in the way he describes it, at least. Uh, now, the, so now the question to me is, I mean, the role of the federal government in dealing with a homeless problem. I mean, mm. there is a homeless problem here in Washington, D.C., certainly in San Francisco, certainly in L.A. I think I saw in the news last night something like 41, 47 percent of the homeless in this country are like in Los Angeles. Right? Wow. But is that the role of the federal government? And to really, th- I, and I have to tell you, knowing San Francisco as well as I do, having lived there in my favorite city on the planet other than Paris, uh, in this country, let's this idea that there are needles flowing down into San Francisco Bay from these tents of the homeless, I seriously doubt it. Yeah, I mean, that seems a rather um, lurid allegation to make, and I'm not sure what the basis, in fact, for that is. One would, I mean, I'm certainly not an expert on, on homelessness, which is a persistent and serious problem, but it would seem like it would be better dealt with at a local level, certainly, than, Always at, has a, been. than at a federal level. Um, but, I mean, I don't, almost to, to accept the premise of that question is almost to accept that the president is genuinely concerned about either homelessness or needles going into San Francisco Bay. And I'm not sure that that is really um, the case. Um, I mean, I think that it is very much about uh, making cities like San Francisco, and previously he harped on Chicago for different reasons, making these cities emblematic of a kind of liberalism or progressivism that he wants to position himself in opposition to. It is, uh, I'm sure Matt can speak to this, but I mean, it is a rather Fox News kind of approach where you sort of select cities that are just taken to bespeak liberalism by their very names. I think to underline that a little more, this is uh, very directly something that Fox News has been harping on, the idea of homelessness in uh, California. Over the last several months, we did a review earlier this month uh, looking at the the past few, and and they had done something like 53 segments on homelessness in California uh, in in recent weeks. Uh, And so this is literally a case where the president is watching his television and getting cues about what to talk about from that. The conservative media more generally, uh, and Fox News specifically, has made this uh, a real issue for its viewers and one of those viewers happens to sit in the Oval Office. Uh, spoken, I might add, by someone who knows, in this case, for sure, what he's talking about. How many months did you spend just watching Fox News, Fox and Friends in the morning? And Oh, I mean, I still do. Oh, There's no I, other way to tell exactly what, what the president is tweeting about than, than to uh, follow along uh, with uh, his uh, daily briefing. <laughs> And daily briefing, meaning Fox Beating, and Friends. Yes, Fox and Friends, absolutely. Fox and Friends in the morning. Uh, I, I just want to point out from a political point of view, uh, just coming back from California and doing an update on the politics of California, there are 80 members in the California State Assembly. Democrats hold 61 seats out of 80. There's one vacancy. Republicans have 18. There are 40 seats in the State Senate. Democrats hold 29 of them. 
There are 53 members of the congressional delegation. Democrats hold 46 of them. And there is not one elected statewide Republican in California. Um, so any thought that Donald Trump is going to make any inroads politically in California, I think. But he can go there and raise tons of money, and that's what he did this week. And, you know, he's, he's amassing this war chest for 2020. Um, and, you know, he's going to run a ton of negative ads. And whether California is blue or red, it spins the same. And just to, just to jump in briefly also, I mean, he's reviewing things already through the prism of the Electoral College, where it doesn't really matter if he loses California by 4 million votes or 6 million votes. It still, you know, doesn't, doesn't alter the scoreboard in that sense. Right. As long as he can count on Texas. Right. Story. Uh, we will uh, take a quick break here and now stand it to John Bennett and Matt Gertz here on the Bill Press Pod this Thursday, September 19. Hey, good to have you with us in our podcast today, our roundtable today brought to you by the Iron Workers Union under the leadership of President Eric Dean, the Iron Workers they do the important structural work uh, in every new building in this country and every new bridge and tunnel. Uh, do, they are building uh, America's communities today and ready to rebuild America's infrastructure tomorrow if Congress ever gets its act together. We salute them, thank them for their support of the uh, podcast, and direct you to their website at ironworkers.org. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. We're back with today's roundtable. Matt Gertz and Al Stanish, John Bennett. Uh, welcome back, everybody. And um, 
Back to Washington, D.C., some interesting uh, appearances in front of Congress this week um, by maybe people who are not so well-known, one who is not so well-known and one who is well-known. Let's start with the not-so-well-known, a 16-year-old teenager from Norway, right? Uh, Greta Thunberg, Thunberg, uh, who sailed across the Atlantic to get to New York to speak to um, representatives of the United Nations about climate change, testified in front of Congress where she told members of Congress all she wanted them to do was not to listen to her, just listen to the scientists and what they say about climate change and then act. Anything going to happen, John? Oh, you mentioned uh, there in your open about Congress getting its act together. Uh, I see no evidence that it's going to do that on just about anything. We may fund the government uh, at the end of the year, we may avoid a shutdown, but on, on passing major legislation like addressing climate change in any kind of meaningful way, I don't, maybe in my lifetime, maybe not. On climate change, or how about on guns, Niall? Uh, well, it seems fairly unlikely. I mean, I know that there was this peculiar floating of a proposal from Bill Barr. Um, seeming to do the do the president's work or, or run a kind of test case on on gun laws there, but I you know that issue has obviously been one that has uh, not gained traction in Congress typically, and uh, again I don't see any great reason to suppose that'll change. Matt, I saw something this this week that ninety I think it was a CBS poll that like ninety one percent of the American people believe climate change is real and we got to do something about it. Uh, is the media doing enough to put pressure on Congress or politicians generally to act? I think more than uh, they have in the past. I think we're certainly seeing an uptick in coverage. I think the uh, the climate forum that the Democratic candidates had uh, a few weeks back uh, was a useful exercise. Um, at the end of the day, we're not going to see anything with this Congress on climate change, with this president on climate change. We would need to have, uh, I think, Democrats take uh, some more of those uh, seats in the Senate and, and win back the White House in order to get anything done. And, and I think one thing that's significant, just to mention, um, we gather here on Thursday, September 19, on Friday, September 20, is this massive student walkout in 150 countries um, worldwide, uh, where students have all signed up to walk out of the classroom with the full blessing of their teachers and administrators and parents, and they're asking grown-ups to walk off the job in solidarity with them. Um, again, just trying to say, this is real. We're the ones who are going to suffer. <laughs> Damn it, do, do something about it. They don't vote today, most of them. Maybe the seniors do, uh, but they will vote down the road. So again, it doesn't look like anything's going to happen now, but but they're going to be they're going to be entering voting age, and and maybe that'll make a difference down the road. But but back to guns, you know, the president was asked last night on Air Force One coming back from California uh, whether the momentum is 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 at risk of, of fading away to do something relatively soon, and he didn't dismiss the premise that they might have already lost momentum to get something done. So it feels like that 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 nothing is going to happen. Uh, on guns, you know, they're going to run out of, of legislative days when when both chambers are in session fairly quickly over the next few months, and they have to they have to get to a funding fight uh, in in November, December. That will be all mostly about uh, the president's border wall, and I just don't. It doesn't seem like they they don't have the physical time to have you know two or three fights at once. Yeah, just a final point on this now is that all this talk 
or speculation that the president might be ready to do something. I mean, is that really real after we've heard the president, I think, two years in a row go to the NRA convention and say, mm. I will be with you 100% of the way and you can count on me? It's a, it's a very valid point to raise in the remarks that John just alluded to on Air Force One. He mentioned at least twice his... Um, loyalty or enthusiasm for the Second Amendment, which doesn't suggest someone who is about to enact um, sweeping change on gun laws. Now, uh, President Trump has sometimes struck a somewhat surprising tone on those things. I mean, there was a a meeting um, at the White House in one instance where he did seem to suggest that he was open to those kind of ideas. Then after that, someone from the NRA arrived and he mm. seemed less enthusiastic. Right. Now, the other, uh, uh, the other um, notable appearance in front of Congress this week, uh, someone much better known to us around the table at any rate and our listeners, uh, Corey Lewandowski, former campaign chair for President Trump, uh, who had a very feisty appearance in front of the House of the House Judiciary Committee, um, took on, blasted some members of the committee, and also said something um, very controversial about his any need for him to tell the truth to the media. I have no obligation to be honest with the media because there's just as dishonest as anybody else. See? No obligation to be honest to the media, and then the next morning he was immediately invited to appear on CNN's New Day. Matt, what the hell is going on? I wish I knew. Um, so, why would CNN invite a man on air who who vows ahead of time to lie on air? Well, I think this is sort of part of a, a broader model that CNN has pursued over the last several years, which is get on uh, some pro-Trump person who will assuredly lie to their audience and then sort of berate them and, and create some sort of, uh, you know, uh, grilling, so to speak. Uh, I don't think that really works at all, though. What ends up happening, is, as happened in, in this case with uh, Alison Camerata interviewing him, is... Uh, he lies. She says that he's lying. He sort of pushes through it, says that she's lying. The audience is left sort of uh, completely confused, not knowing who to believe, what side to take. Uh, at the end of the day, it's great for Corey Lewandowski. Let's make that very clear. His purpose in going on CNN is to uh, portray himself to the president of the United States as someone who is uh, pushing back against the media, pushing back against Democrats to support uh, him and his agenda. He got what he wanted out of it. CNN, I, I don't know what they, I, I guess they wanted a, a confrontational interview and they got that, but it's not much uh, use to their viewers. Remember, uh, John, one time they disinvited Kellyanne Conway. That's right. Uh, and I, then I, they ended up taking her back. Uh, you know, uh, she seems to, to come back and, and, and just keep coming back. Uh, I think Matt's right. Uh, this is CNN standard stuff, uh, especially on, on the morning show. Um, uh, I don't. I, I think Lewandowski got exactly what he wanted, as Matt said. And remember, he's he's thinking about a Senate run. So I mean, he got a free he got he got free national television Total. time. He's going to have to raise money to do that. Um, it, he nothing but winning here for Lewandowski going on CNN and and having that back and forth with with Allison. Um, you know, he can take that to to all the conservative donors if he's serious about this Senate bid. And, you know, it's right there after the testimony. Um, it, pr pretty wise for him to accept that. I, I, I'm assuming they reached out to him. I, I think it was pretty brilliant. He name-dropped his website. Right. <laughs> oh, right. yeah. 
Is this a debasement of journalistic standards we're supposed to be proud of, Niall? Uh, <laughs> there's so many parts of the premise of that question I could quibble with. Um, I, I mean, it's, look, I, I think that there has been generally, before President Trump even considered running for office, an increasingly pantomimish approach sometimes to cable news um, where people are brought on specifically to create heat rather than light. And I understand that. I mean, I understand that it is at some level a business of ratings and it's mm-hmm. at some level a business of entertainment. And also, I mean, it is made, these questions are made more pointed in this administration because, I mean, John and I both report on the White House. If you want insights into what the president is thinking, you seek out people close to him some of those people you know aren't necessarily trustworthy, but you want the information to see if you can independently verify it. There are there are ethical complications to these questions, but that's that's a broader conversation than whether Corey Lewandowski should be invited onto CNN just after bragging about lying to the media. Okay, now the to speak of television, the best television moment of the week, if not of the year, if not forever, uh, we saw this week. Dancing with the Stars and a very special guest. Dancing the Salsa with his partner Lindsay, it's Sean Spicer. And uh, we're sorry, we're just uh, audio, no video. We can't show you the uh, incredibly wild lime green skin tight outfit that Sean Spicer was wearing. Um, this is just a jump ball. I'm just going to throw it up there. Who wants to comment on Sean Spicer? I mean, he'll, he'll stop at nothing, right, to make a buck. I, I saw that he was paid $125,000. It's good money if you can get it, I guess. Uh, I, have no, I have purposely kept myself from watching the video. I've seen still shots of what Sean was wearing. Uh, I, you know, I don't want to see myself dance. I don't think I want to see Sean dance. But having dealt with him when he was uh, still White House press secretary, I, I can just say it's, it's utterly surreal to, to even just see the still photos of him in, in that garb. No shame, Matt. Uh, I think two things here. One, uh, he would rather see, be seen as a joke than as a villain. Uh, and so to that extent, he, he's mm-hmm. getting that. Uh, it's, it's a rebranding of sorts, I suppose. Uh, and second, I mean, the money does spend. And I think uh, in a uh, I think fairly positive development, uh, no network hired him as a talking head uh, after he left the White House, which is you know something that you normally see happen. Uh, you know, Sarah Sanders went to Fox News, uh, of course, and and you know all sorts of uh, uh, past cases uh, we could name uh, from Democratic and Republican administrations. But no one wanted to hire him because he uh, was so directly linked to lying on behalf of the president. Mm-hmm. And he tried to get a job with with oh, uh, sure. with with all of them. Uh, now he put out a. Uh, a tweet which he later dropped, right, <laughs> suggesting that if people believe in Jesus, they will vote for him. Uh, <laughs> or, well, or or that his belief in Jesus would it would infringe upon his ability to win Dancing yes, with the Stars. Yes, right. I think was the general that yeah, there'd be an right, anti-religious I vote. Yeah. Um, I, I don't even know where to begin with that. Honestly, I don't really know where to begin with this with this story. Period. I do think it's interesting um, to Matt's point that Sean. I mean, it's interesting the way some veterans of the Trump administration seem to have had more difficulty than others in in getting paid 
gigs, and he seems to have been one of the worst people in that respect, implying to me that his reputation, such as it was, has been um, tarnished to an even more permanent or grave extent than some other people who have worked for the administration, perhaps because he was out there right at the very start, you know, lying about the inauguration crowds, and, and then there was Saturday Night Live and all of that. But he seems to have had a particularly complete fall from any kind of uh, reputational dignity. Right. So um, we've got to wrap up here, but we, we would not be doing our job if we walked away without at least if, at least one comment from each of you on where we are in the 2020 Democratic primary. The um, There's so many aspects of it, but the one that struck me particularly was that Joe Biden has been getting a lot of criticism in the last few days because he said something in South Carolina about, look, when I was there in the Senate, I used to be able to work with Mitch McConnell, of all people, and actually get some things done. And that now is considered to be a big strike against him. Uh, should it be, John? Well, it, it, no, it shouldn't be, because, you know, the only two words that matter when, you know, the, the Democrats are on stage debating uh, their various health care plans and Biden is, is, is looking over at Elizabeth Warren and, and Bernie Sanders and saying, you know, you don't pay, your plan doesn't pay for itself, you have to raise taxes. Um, but it doesn't matter if their pan, plans pay for themselves or not because of two words, Mitch McConnell. Their plans aren't going anywhere. Um, maybe Biden's isn't either uh, to, to kind of build on Obamacare and fix some things uh, in that law. Uh, but it, it has, it stands a better chance of getting a floor vote or something that looks a lot like what Biden's talking about. So you know, in a realistic world, what, what the former vice president said there is very realistic. We don't live in a realistic world. We live in a highly partisan world. So I'm not surprised that, that he's taking uh, some flack from the left for saying that. But, but he's right. He's, you have to work with, with Mitch McConnell. He's going to be the majority leader. Yeah, and not, this is not meant as a pro-Biden question. But, I mean, isn't there something to be said for, like, getting things done, Matt? And I mean, I think that you can probably do a good amount, not everything that uh, Democrats have suggested, uh, with the reconciliation bill if you take back the Senate. If you don't take back the Senate, you're in real trouble, uh, and you're in a situation where you basically need to uh, use executive actions that somehow will not get tripped up by a court uh, that has been largely dominated by uh, recent uh, Trump appointments. Mm -hmm. So it becomes much more difficult. So this whole thing, now people are trying to paint Biden then as the... uh Guy who's in Mitch McConnell's pocket, I guess. Yeah, I Fair? think. Uh, well, I mean, Biden is a more incrementalist figure and someone who believes in the institutions of Washington much more. And I think what you see is that certainly in the activist or most politically engaged elements of the left, people no longer think that. I mean, people, and I'm not judging their viewers right or wrong, but people see Republicans as the enemy as opposed to, well, we have some intellectual disagreements about taxation policy. They see someone like Mitch McConnell as someone who is a um, regressive, um, antagonistic figure. And therefore, when Biden uh, tries to introduce sort of positive mood music about him, there's a backlash <laughs> against that. Right. Uh, final word on this may be from uh, Alan Simpson, former Republican senator from Wyoming, a very colorful character indeed. And when he heard about this yesterday, his comment was, quote, you think you can be a United States senator and do your job, really do your job by not talking to the other side? You have to talk to the commies, the kooks, the racists, 
the tea party, you have to talk to everybody. <laughs> I'm not sure what category Mitch McConnell falls into uh, in, in that particular list, but at, at any rate. Um, and we always ask you to come with your favorite story, something that really caught your attention this week. Um, where do we go? Matt. So my favorite uh, media conspiracy theory that I don't actually believe, but it's kind of funny, uh, is that the uh, Democratic Socialists of America have infiltrated the real estate sections of the New York Times and the Wall Street <laughs> Journal uh, and are uh, pumping out stories about uh, the phenomenal uh, wealth of the uh, richest people in the country and the ways that they spend it um, in order to provoke a revolution. Um, again, don't actually believe it, but it's kind of funny to think about. Um, in there, the latest gem, I think, in this category comes from the Wall Street Journal uh, discussing the founders of the company uh, Big Ass Fans, uh, who made $500 million uh, selling that company to uh, some other firm uh, and are, uh, were attempting to buy a uh, palatial place in New York City. Uh, it's a, a rather uh, fun read uh, about um, New York City real estate uh, the, and um, the celebrities who own it. God, this is a conspiracy I don't even I hadn't even heard about. John, top that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I can, uh, but I'll, I'll give it a shot. Well, uh, when it, one of these weeks where we're talking about maybe going to war with Iran and uh, needles in San Francisco Bay. Uh, sometimes I like to turn to the world of sports for a lighter moment. Good. Uh, a really nice moment last night. You mentioned San Francisco, maybe your favorite uh, city in the world other than Paris. Well, they're a baseball team, the Giants, uh, mm -hmm. in Boston this week for a series. And uh, they have an outfielder, young outfielder named Mike Yastrzemski. If that sounds familiar, it should. He's the grandson of, uh, of Hall of Famer Carl Yastrzemski, 18-time All-Star, uh, seven gold gloves, over three gold gloves uh, awards, over 3,000 hits and over 400 home runs for the Boston Red Sox. He was an outfielder. Well, he last night threw out the first pitch at Fenway Park, and uh, behind the plate catching was his grandson, Mike. Oh. And the night before, Mike hit a home run over the center field fence at Fenway Park. So a nice, kind of a nice lighter moment. There are still some good things going on out there. Good. Bring us back to uh, Major League Baseball. There's always some good stories there. Go Nats, by the way. Um, yeah. Niall. Um, so one from my uh, native side of the Atlantic, um, uh -huh. Boris Johnson. Not a, not, a, not, not, a, not a Brexit story, but one that I did think shone a bit of a light into where we are in political and media discourse. Mr. Johnson visited a hospital in uh, London or in the London area mm -hmm. where he was confronted by the father of an ailing child. Um, the, the gentleman was also a Labour Party um, activist, but be that as it may, this person made a lot of um, criticisms of Johnson's handling of the National Health Service and accused Johnson of a, a press opportunity uh, to which Johnson said on camera, there's no press here. Um, at which point the man gesticulated to the banks of TV cameras that were actually filming the exchange and said, what do you call all these people then? Um, which seems to be kind of just a, a, w a window into where we are right now. And a window into Boris Johnson? Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Uh, well, my favorite moment was um, seeing Elizabeth Warren at Washington Square in New York attracting a crowd that the police say um, surpassed 20,000 people and then watching Donald Trump's reaction, because we remember how this administration, his presidency started with a big lie about the size of his, of his inaugural crowd, and he scoffed 
at this uh, report and saying, number one, he did not believe there were 20,000 people there. And number two, even if there were, that's easy. In New York, anybody can stand on the street corner and get 20,000 people. Uh, it just reminds us that there's something, the one issue that Donald Trump <laughs> cannot let go of is crowd size. And whether or not it reflects something about his manhood, we'll just leave that for everybody else to decide, right? Uh, at any rate. Uh, so thank you, uh, Matt Gertz. Thank you, Niall Standish. Thank you, uh, John Bennett. Uh, let me wind up with my parting shot for today. Uh, I always remind you the parting shot are my comments alone and not necessarily those of our panelists. And normally, I don't do movie reviews, but take it from me. There's a new documentary coming out this week that you must see and that will scare the hell out of you. I saw it last week at a special screening here in Washington. It's called Where's My Roy Cohn? It's directed by Matt Tiernauer, and it tells the story of Roy Cohn, who has to be one of the most evil men who ever walked the face of the earth. He was a hatchet man for the disgraced Senator Joe McCarthy. He organized the Army McCarthy hearings to get even with the Army for drafting his boyfriend, David Shine. He launched a campaign to expose and fire all gay federal employees, even though he himself was a closeted gay and later died of AIDS. Then he went into private practice as a lawyer in New York, representing New York's worst, every known mafia leader, even cold-blooded killers, and a young cold-blooded developer named Donald Trump. It was Cohn who defended Trump for refusing to rent apartments to African Americans. And it was Trump, it was Cohn, rather, who taught Trump the lessons that he still lives by today. Cohn told him, be willing to do anything to win, never say you're sorry, never, never apologize, and always attack, attack, attack. And that's what I found so scary. You watch a documentary and you realize Roy Cohn isn't dead. He still lives today. The same amorality, the same cruelty, the same evil. Roy Cohn lives today in the monster he created. Except for the hair color, Donald Trump is Roy Cohn. And that's it for today's podcast. Again, thanks to our panelists, now Standish, John Bennett, Matt Gertz. And uh, we invite you, if you haven't already done so, to subscribe to the Bill Press Pod. It's free and it's easy. Just go to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or TuneIn. Search for the Bill Press Pod and subscribe. Then tell all your friends to sign up too. And if you really want to make our day, give us a great big five-star review. The more reviews, the more listeners, and the more people we reach every day with the Bill Press Pod. Thanks again for your support. One quick programming note. Our next podcast features my interview with Pulitzer Prize-winning Washington Post investigative reporter David Farenholt, talking about all the ways that Donald Trump is lining his own pockets while playing president. Don't miss that interview. It's actually uh, worse than you think it is. Meanwhile, stay strong, and we'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. <laughs>